Genesis 37, 1 to 11. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his, fathers, but his father kept the matter in mind. The word of the Lord. As the story goes, the anger of Joseph's brothers are going to move them first to be tempted to kill him, which is an embarrassing little feature of this story, and, and secondly, to a group decision uh, to sell him, to, uh, to sell him to foreigners, to kind of rid um, him um, and his, in their interpretation, his impertinent um, self-centered personality out of their stories and out of their, their narratives. Um, one of the things that they fail to see, though, and you, you might have thought that they would have maybe explored his this capacity for dreaming a little bit further, is that this was an enormously talented young man. The word that we would use um, in the church uh, for, for Joseph would be gifted or called or anointed. There's just something in this story. And, and, and those of you who know the story know that through a whole series of personal and political trials that Joseph's family will end up bowing down to him. And yet he will also end up being a tremendous blessing to them. And so the, the kind of controversy and the confusion of envy play themselves through this 
through this story. An envy that moves to jealousy, that moves to malice, that moves to contempt, and that even moves to violence. We didn't choose the seven deadly sins or the seven glittering vices for our reflection during Lent because these are nice categories for our understanding. The reason that the seven deadly sins have developed in the spirituality and the prayer and the confession and the self-examination of Christians over the years is because we realize that there are sins that war against our souls. There are sins even in the context of a family structure that push us to think and to feel and in some extreme and obscure cases to, to do things, to follow through on the angry habits of our hearts in the most unbelievably and dramatic ways. This morning, I want to use this story to, to get your attention. This is, this is the story of a group of brothers who are so envious and jealous of their younger brother, their first instinct is to murder him, and their second instinct and final decision is to sell him and just to release him and to forget about him. When I think of the story of Joseph, I think of my friend, I'm going to call him Jay, um, for the tape. Jay and his wife uh, are a hip, cool, young, professional couple who live in Belfast, Northern Ireland. That's their, their home country. And I got to know Jay when he spent several years with us here in Canada in our church community. I, I, I want to be like Jay. He is this kind of, you know, 30, early 40-something, one of those guys who sort of says the right things, wears the right clothes, you know, that he has that perfect, thin, athletic cut that, that lets him sort of wear that, you know, chic Euro uh, fashion. You know, I want to be like Jay, but I'm afraid it's just not happening, is it? And his wife, and together as a couple, they present in a, in a pretty wonderful, attractive way, along with being faithful disciples and Christians, but they're pretty neat people. And if they were here in Toronto now as a married couple, they would be in Knox Church and probably at the center of our young adults and young professionals community. That would be a dream, actually, to have them here with us. I spent an evening with them recently in Belfast, and we had a conversation about another thing that you don't know about them, and that is that despite the beautiful surface appearance of their lives and their gifts and their jobs, they are really, really struggling to start a family. And this ache of not being able to become pregnant has has gone to the center of their lives. And this beautiful, talented, anointed couple has this little dark spot in their souls, this open, ongoing wound. And they've had, they've had many attempts, and we spent an evening together talking about this. One of the things that we were, we were talking about, because I had joked that that I'm not much for social media and, and that 
that their Facebook page is the only Facebook page that I visit. I don't have a Facebook page, but I can, I can teach you how to get on if you want to, want to know that. Um, and, and I go to their Facebook page, they're the only people, literally, people whose Facebook page I go to because they have they come up with the most wonderful three-day exotic vacations in Europe than you can ever imagine. So I sort of, you know, live vicariously through this young couple who goes skiing in Switzerland and, and a romantic weekend in the south of France and so on and these little easy jets for 17 pounds you can fly anywhere you want. For us, travel is such a big deal. And the conversation turned to, to their experience of Facebook and, and the way that they keep up with their friends and their extended family community and their church friends through Facebook. And, you know, and Jeremy said to me this, this line when we were talking about these issues together, he said, you know, he said, when you go on Facebook, he said, there's a really strong temptation with how people present themselves and how they present their children, how they present their families. There's a really strong temptation to think that people's lives are just a little bit more perfect than your life. I thought to myself, there, there it is. There at the center of our culture is the temptation to be envious. Somehow built into the fabric maybe not even meaning to create envy in a community by just portraying your family or your children in positive light for your friends and others to see. But we do live in a culture of envy and a culture of discontent. This is bred in the bones of our, of our culture, this culture of comparison and competition. All you have to do is to, to think about the taken for granted approach that we live with and that we succumb to and that we experience in terms of marketing and advertising and entertainment. This, this strategy of developing discontent in the life of a potential, potential customer. And this, this troubling dissatisfaction that then becomes the means for people to participate economically goes right to the center of human identity. I'm not gonna lecture you on the social crisis of young females and males in terms of their body image. But in some way I can understand it. I'd love to be with Look to be like Jeremy and just wear that beautiful Euro cut suit instead of the sort of square box that I'm usually going to be, be wearing. These, these strategy makes us feel insecure about our bodies, about our lifestyles, even about our homes, that, that our homes for the most part of just are really meet our needs. They, they help us, they bless us, and yet it, there's this, this constant desire for something else, for something more, and, and seeing the images of other human beings, whatever the medium, and to, and to have something take place in us that, that develops this deeper desire and this want. You know, one of, one of the most wildly attractive television programs right now on specialty TV called The House of Cards, in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a crazy way, 
explores the jealousy and the envy through the lens of a tragically flawed political couple. And yet hundreds of thousands of people signing up to watch this show, even though it's very dark and very twisted and portrays anything but a husband and a wife in a healthy, committed relationship. Ecclesiastes 4 in the scripture has a way of nailing our culture, doesn't it? If Some people think that the, the Bible is just so out of touch and so outdated, but there is this uncanny capacity that the scripture has for connecting with who we are and actually what is going on in the habits of our hearts. Ecclesiastes 4 says, And I saw that all toil, that all work, and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In other words, the writer of Ecclesiastes is, is kind of saying that, that our whole economic structure, the whole way that we think about vocation and calling and work, is rooted in the temptation of envy. If, if that isn't one of the most prophetic ways of understanding our contemporary culture written several thousand years ago, I don't know what is. The book of Proverbs says this in chapter 14, verse 30. At heart, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And so it's no surprise that in Scripture we get several mainstream stories of the power of envy. Joseph and his brothers is a great way to kick off this teaching and this thinking about the place of, of envy. But it continues profoundly in the Old Testament, for instance, the story of Cain and Abel. It's a story about anger, yes, but it's a story about sibling rivalry and envy. The story of, of King Saul and David, the story of Joseph and his brothers, the story of Daniel who was granted such success in a foreign country. He was granted the success of being the third most powerful person in a foreign territory as a Jew, completely unheard of, and yet his success, because he was able to interpret dreams successfully, brought him the envy and the competition of the bureaucracy of that day, who plotted against him and who tried to trap him because of his practices as a spiritual person. Listen to this story of the beginning of King Saul and David. After David, in Samuel 18, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became in one spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So here's a, here's a story of friendship. Here's a story lacking in malice. Here's a story that's utterly, where jealousy is utterly absent. There's this beautiful picture of self-giving and sharing in the context of a friendship between David and Jonathan, who is Saul's son. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army that pleased all the troops and the officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, 
The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he but get the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. The seven deadly sins aren't just nice categories for human understanding. Seven deadly sins are habits of the heart that have a potential to rule over us, that have a potential to move us out of the goodness and the will of God into a dark and deeper place. Listen to a couple of quotes on the nature of envy. Envy entices us to look across the fence and to hate our neighbors because their grass is greener than ours. We are envious. When we are envious, we have a sudden turn. We have suddenly turned into a competition. We feel threatened, and so we covet what we think others are or have. Michael Mangus, psychologist, from Wheaton College writes this, envy is dissatisfaction with who God has made me to be. It is also the suspicion that God is withholding what I deserve and giving it to someone else. When we wish we were smarter than another or richer than another or more beautiful than another, we succumb to the sin of envy. And as we're told, envy works the bone. It eats away at our souls. The New Testament also touches significantly on the theme of envy. And some of the the best known passages that we know from Scripture that, that some of you may remember from years ago, if you're not up to date, but the story of the prodigal son is a story a man had two sons. And when the one who had completely ruined his life decided to renew his relationship with the family that he rejected came back, his older brother who had stayed and helped his father run the farm was enormously envious and jealous. Because he didn't get that he was, in fact, blessed and always had been blessed and loved. There's the story of Mary and Martha and the implication of the envy in sibling sibling rivalry. There's the the implication in John's Gospel, chapter 21, of this beautiful story of the reinstatement of Peter, and yet Peter still wants to know what the Apostle John is up to. And Jesus has to say to Peter, don't don't you worry about John. You, You focus on your relationship with me. Don't you worry about my love for John. I love you, and I'm inviting you to love me. Simon the sorcerer, this guy who is attracted to the ministry of the apostles who are able to heal and to change and to speak with power, that he has this kind of desire to to take on 
these kinds of gifts. And, and, and there are, don't get me wrong, there are signs of hopefulness when it comes to relationships without envy in Scripture. David and Jonathan is one, and Jesus and his relationship with John the Baptist. Two kind of very different guys, and yet have this mutuality of respect and understanding that somehow in their lives and in their lives together, God is unfolding his kingdom. Is it surprising to you that with the depth and the power of envy to eat away at somebody's soul, that every single mainstream in the New Testament warns against envy? In the Gospels, in the letters of Paul, in the epistles of Peter, in the writings of James. These are all theological pastors who are concerned for the health of their community, and each one of them warns seriously against the potential of envy, along with other lists of the seven deadly and other kinds of sins. And they all encourage contentment. Alvin hit it out of the park, I think, this morning. If not for the children, certainly for you. It's one of those cases where the children's story preaches the message before the pastor even stands up. And it's a beautiful thing because um, the, you recognize the things are working together. Hebrews 13.5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you or never will I forsake you. The writer of Hebrews takes that beautiful promise of God not leaving us and not forsaking us and places it in a way that addresses our temptation to be envious. That the sin of envy is, and the practice of envy and succumbing to an envious spirit is, is something that happens when we actually forget about who God is. We're not just talking about relational psychology. We're actually talking about theological understanding. We're actually talking about understanding our relationship with God. And somehow, when we forget the nature of our relationship with God, when we forget who God is, then we lower ourselves, it seems, to a kind of a comparison approach to other people and to ourselves. Paul writes to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So there is something to be gained in life, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The church does from time to time have an envy problem. You think to yourself, like, how, how really is that possible? Well, let, 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 me, let me, for the sake of, of our communal analysis, our communal reflection, let me just burrow down a little bit. In our contemporary church culture, there are people who are members of one church who are extremely envious of other church communities. We just wish that what we hear or what we have experienced or what our friends tell us is going on down the street or uptown or across the city, we just wish that that was happening, so wish that that was happening in our context. Makes us think and act in pretty funny and peculiar ways. 
A second way of thinking about envy in the contemporary church is to, to think about pastors. Eugene Peterson, the American Presbyterian pastor to the pastors, many years ago identified this in the lives of pastors when he, when he mused that, that in the 80s and 90s, it seems that, that the pastors are so tempted to be just about everything else other than to be a pastor. That they're so tempted to, with the other professions, because there's this sort of seeping idea amongst pastors that, that doing some other kind of cultural occupation is more meaningful or more important or more successful or more profound than, than simply leading a flock of disciples and training people in the way of Jesus. And so Peterson, I think correctly, identified that, that pastors were really becoming more like politicians. They were tempted to become more like managers, more like marketers, more like desiring to become cultural experts versus becoming experts in the word of God. And he bemoans this by saying and calling pastors for the last few generations back to the core of their pastoral role of attending to scripture, participating in prayer, and giving your life in relationship with others in spiritual direction. So what Peterson does in much of his whole career is identify the envy problem that North American pastors have been confronted with as they've tried to live their lives in culturally meaningful ways. Then there's a more common one, one that I think is probably at the core of much of the New Testament writing about envy and dissatisfaction, and, and that is the, the kind of envy between people, the kind of envy around gifting or anointing, the, the example of, of Simon the sorcerer. That kind of envy where, that causes Christians to want things in their lives that aren't really theirs. To admire a gift in somebody else at such a level or at such a depth that, that they actually fool themselves into thinking that that's actually their gift. That's what they want, that they desire to do that, to have that role, to act that out. Wanting what someone else has and thinking about your identity because of your attraction to what somebody else has. It doesn't seem like that has the way that God has created us to be. And so the Ten Commandments speak to coveting your neighbor's wife. You cannot have your neighbor's wife. Your neighbor's wife is for your neighbor. That's the way things work. You cannot have your neighbor's horse or mule your, your neighbor's horse is for the well-being of your neighbor and your neighbor's family. God's going to look after you in some important way. I think the real tragedy, though, in the church when it comes to envy has to do with a core responsibility and calling and blessing that we have as Christians, and that is to disciple one another. That is to come alongside one another and encourage and strengthen and train one another in the way of Jesus. A friend of mine has come up with a wonderful mentoring model. He calls it the, the C-stretch support model of Christian mentoring. 
see, stretch, support. And so you, you're connected with the person. Maybe it's a young person. Maybe it's a, a new Christian. Maybe it's a, a person who's coming back to the faith. And you have this, this opportunity to, to kind of walk with them and to, to grow with them and to, to teach them. And, 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 but it, it takes seeing them. It takes seeing who God has made them to be. It, it, it takes some kind of sense of their potential. It takes a just a little bit of admiration for the handiwork of God in that person's life. You have, you've got to see that person. You've got to identify them as a person in whom God is working. And then the stretch is, is you, you, you develop by the Holy Spirit a strategy to help that person move from where they are to where you sense God is calling them to move. There's no C-stretch support in the story of King Saul or Jonathan. There's no self-giving, sacrificially relating to another person. There's no mutual admiration in the life of the story of Joseph and his brothers. The envy and the jealousy ruin that potential for spiritual development and for mentoring and for discipleship. And then you've got to ask yourself, how do I walk with this person in their journey of faith? What, do, what, is, what was, is it going to take? What time is it going to take for me? What money is it going to take for me? What level of friendship and commitment? And what, what commitment of prayer is it going to take for me to walk with that person? Now, if, if, if we took amongst other models, a model of C-stretch support, one of the things that I hope you realize is that you have no chance in helping another person, of giving yourself to the training and the seeing of the maturing and the blossoming of another Christian disciple, if all you're thinking about is what they have and what you don't have. Envy has this ruinous capacity, not just for jealousy, but also a murderous capacity to destroy the beautiful community of the church who are called to disciple one another in the way of Jesus. A passage that has been ruined in some people's minds by wedding ceremonies is the Apostle Paul writing about love in 1 Corinthians 13. I don't think weddings have ruined this passage as long as we allow it to stay alive in our normal lives. Although if you watch the House of Cards, envy in a marriage is ruinous and evil. Love is patient and is kind. It does not envy, Paul writes. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Always hopes. See, stretch, Support. You're, you're hoping, you're longing for the success, for the growth, for the development, for the maturing of another person. But you're not putting that into action if all you're really doing is comparing yourself with them. You know, one of the embarrassing realities of being a pastor training young pastoral interns over the years is that from time to time, and in my situation, probably more than not, you come up with young interns and protégés who actually are more talented than you are. 
I remember classically one of my associates from years ago, one of the first times that he preached. Now, we came back from vacation, and someone in the church came up and said to me, he said, wow, Paul, you realize that David is an amazing preacher. I said, yeah, I wouldn't have had David preach if I didn't know he was an amazing preacher. But there's a strong temptation to avoid young people in ministry, men and women, they need people to love them, to care, to see, stretch, support. Where envy is not in the room, but hoping all things, dreaming all things. Can you imagine the story of Joseph and his brothers if the brothers and the father had realized the talent? As quirky as it sometimes shows up in young, immature, unformed people, sometimes shows up in a kind of an arrogant way that is off-putting, but to actually see the capacity for leadership, to see the capacity for wisdom, to see the capacity for dreaming, the church could unleash that in our time. The God-given Holy Spirit anointing of young men and young women to enter into the life and the leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ. Who is going to see, stretch, support? Not an envious generation who is jealous of the energy and the education and the strength. At the end, when you come to seven deadly sins, the reason we bring them into the Lenten season is because what we're saying is it's just not good enough to diagnose the envy. You have to bring the envy into a place or any of the sins where it can be legitimately redirected. The word that we have as Christians for that is conversion. The reason we bring the seven deadly sins into the season of Lenten is so that, that we can look at Jesus as we follow him on his pathway to the cross and we can look at our own lives and recognize and remember that Jesus is God's remedy for the deep, dark, seriously twisted habits of our hearts. There's two ways that we learn from Jesus in this. First is in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 4 to 11. One of the oldest passages in all of the New Testament is this poem or hymn or song that's about Jesus. It says about Jesus, he was in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. To see in Jesus Christ is the reversal of envy. Jesus is the reversal of envy for all time. He who was God did not consider being God something to grasp after, something to long for. Instead, Paul says, he became a servant. Instead, he, he lowered himself. He became a servant. And why did he become a servant? If, if, if I want to connect it in the sermon, it's because he came to give his life to see us as God's called people and beloved people, to stretch us so that we would become who God created us to become and to support us 
by living our lives and by giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit to continue in his way as the way to God. A second characteristic of Jesus, which is the reversal of envy, is the relationship that Jesus had with the Father and with the Spirit. This notion of the God that we worship as Father, Son, and Spirit is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the reversal and the rejection of envy. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are this cooperative community of self-admiration, of mutual affection, of helpful participation, of perfect unity and respect, of deep joy. And so we come to look at our culture, the marketing approaches to our culture, how television portrays human beings, we we come to believe that, that the way of Joseph's brothers, the way of King Saul, the way of Martha, the way of the older son, that these things are, you know, we just throw up our hands and say, that's just the way the world is. It's just just filled with envy. That just seems to, to sort of be the economic engine and the social engine and the psychological engine for how things work out. No. No, that's absolutely not true. We, we reject the temptation and the spirit and the practice of envy in Jesus' name. And we do that because Jesus shows us that God is a community of perfect friends without envy, with mutual love and mutual affection. Thomas Torrance, Presbyterian Reformed theologian, writes this, God has not willed to live alone, but to create and seek others distinct from himself upon whom to pour out his spirit, that he might share with them his divine life and glory as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why the apostles are crazy when envy seeps into the life of the Christian community, because the Christian community, we are the friends that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have gathered together in that beautiful new communication and conversation in community. And so it's completely counterproductive to the very nature of God, to the very nature of the universe for envy. How ironic that envy fuels our entire culture and at the center of the universe we are created for something so much more beautiful. And Jesus reveals that to us, which is why we watch him closely on his way to the cross even as we struggle with the sinfulness of our hearts that seek and threaten to destroy us. That's why the season of Lent is ultimately a season of renewal. Three things. To remember when you are tempted with envy. That same voice, number one, that spoke to Jesus and said, you're my son in whom I am well pleased. I love you. Is the voice of the Father who is your heavenly Father who speaks those words to you. You are my son, you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Allow the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel to sink into your hearts. Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, 
For you created my own inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What that psalmist is saying is you don't have to be concerned about the grass being greener on the side of over anybody's fence. You have been fearfully, wonderfully made yourself. One of the beautiful gifts of community is when we live long enough in the community of the church, we realize that we come to respect the unique gifts and capacities and insights and journeys of other people. It's a wonderful, beautiful melting pot that takes place when we realize that God has gifted all of us for each other. Not to be envious of that, but to celebrate that and to be confident in that. And finally, in Ephesians 4, we are God's handiwork or workmanship created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word workmanship or handiwork can be translated to be a poem. What it, what it means is this, that, that we are God's work of art. When you, when you realize that you're loved by God, when you realize that each and every one of you, that you have been knit together in your mother's womb, that there's a kind of perfection around who you are, even though your temptation is to, to see that as second best, I'm telling you this morning, you are God's handiwork. You are God's poem. You are God's special sculpture and work of art. Your talents, your gifts, your strengths, your disappointments, all of those things are being shaped for you to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, to live in this community, to live at peace and love with one another to the glory of God in the image of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. Envy is a strong, tenacious temptation. But you don't need envy to be God's best. You don't need envy to experience the fullness of God's love. We all need a renewed picture of Jesus Christ, God's only son, who was God, but who became a servant in order to see us and stretch us and support us along the way. And we're a community that's created and called to live with one another according to that vision. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please join me as we pray. Lord God, we thank you for the way that the scriptures have this capacity to help us frame and understand even the most deadly of our sins. We thank you that they, they lead us to an understanding that, that our sins are from a dark place and that they do not lead to light or to joy, or to peace. That the very, the very thing that we're after, the very thing that we think someone else has, the very thing that ruins our relationships with other people, is the very thing that 
we don't need because of your great love for us. And so we pray that these sins, these glittering vices that we have been talking about along the way during this Lenten season as a community, we pray that you would release us from their power. We pray that you would help us to recognize that you have created us and crafted us and called us and chosen us for something so much more beautiful than the angry, resentful directions that our hearts sometimes take us in. Help us to see the beauty in one another and help us to commit ourselves like you've committed yourself to caring for one another, for teaching and training, for seeing, stretching and supporting one another in the way of Jesus this Lenten season and in the days ahead. We pray for this same spirit, for husbands and wives, for good friends, for close colleagues and teammates. We pray this for parents with their children, and we pray this release of envy between siblings. Do this in our community and in our families through the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, in whom there was no envy, and only love. Amen.